In a world filled with movies, it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you Where even watch? narrowing down a you genre can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Oh, uh, Dad, just do an interview already. Welcome, everybody, to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where this episode we have a special interview brought to you by my dad. Take it away, Dad. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Review Podcast. This is Stephen Turk. Um, today we have a special episode starting off our second year. Our first interview for the year is Mr. Ron Perlman. A lot of you know him for Hellboy, Sons of Anarchy, and of course, Beauty and the Beast. Um, Mr. Perlman, welcome to the show. Please call me Ron. I will. Or anything else other than Mr. Perlman. <laughs> okay, Ron. Um, so how- yo, you can call me yo, you can call me dude, you can call me... Motherfucker. Can I say that on your uh, podcast? Um, normally we're family friendly, but if you go for it, we might just put the explicit label on it. Just, you know, it, I think people right. kind of, well, ex- it's too late. I re- it's, it's too late. I already said it. So, Oh, my son, Ben does the editing. So he, he could probably take care of the one. So I'm not sure it's a big deal. He's going to be busy. He's going to be real busy. <laughs> Uh, like I said, or we could just put the explicit on it and just people know it's, it's, it's you. So yeah. I, I think they're not going to be too surprised. That's E-X-P-L-I-C-I-T. You may as well start writing it now. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. Um, I, I sure hope so. Before we get started with um, what led you into this business and things like that, one thing I like to ask people starting this, starting this year is what was your favorite movie growing up? You know, what was like one of the, your favorite movies? I think it changed, you know, um, uh, a lot. Uh, for, for a little while, it was King Kong, the original uh, version of King Kong from the 30s. Um, and then it was um, The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Charles Lawton version. Um, as I started to get older and I started to realize uh, that um, the effect that movies were having on me um, and I expanded my viewing um, self into foreign films and stuff, uh, discovering people like Akira Kurosawa, The Seven Samurai became my favorite for a minute. Uh, I think Looking back on everything at this point, um, and not, as you say, when I was growing up, um, I think the greatest movie ever made is The Godfather Part One. It's a perfect film in every way. Um, it's flawless. It's uh, the perfect conflagration of narrative, performance, uh, cinematography, sound, uh, score, and pacing, and there's not one moment of it that's out of place. Um, 
I call uh, Sullivan's Travels, the great Preston Sturgis movie, tied for second with a whole bunch of other things like Citizen Kane, um, you know, and some of the ones I already mentioned. I know um, I'm a big movie buff, as you know, from watching a lot of different things. And King Kong growing up was um, one of the ones I remember seeing and enjoying. But at, at the Gojira, I remember seeing Godzilla movie, King of Monsters, and growing up seeing all these Godzilla movies. And then when I finally saw Gojira, as it originally was made or meant to be seen, it was that, that was just breathtaking because you're finally able to, before you thought it was a cheesy film, and then when you see the way original, the original work, it's definitely very um, inspiring, not inspiring, but inspiring for people to make films and to get those points across because it was a message movie without being over right on top of your head, banging you on the head. Oh, it's a message movie as it gets things <clears throat> into your subconscious. But I mean, there's clearly a difference between um, the things that, that uh, float your boat when you're little and you're just coming into uh, the discovery of, of, of the majesty and the glory of movies. And then as you get older, you're, you know, it's like, uh, it's like any acquired taste, you know, you're not gonna enjoy Lafitte Rothschild pre-war red wine as the first thing you ever taste. But you're going to learn eventually once your palate gets more sophisticated that there's a whole bunch of stuff that you um, are discovering as you get older that really like blows your mind. And, you know, that includes uh, directors, it includes actors, it includes writing, um, you know, thought. So um, my tastes are constantly um, growing, um, augmenting in scope. Um, I don't feel like, I'll, you know, I, I feel like my big project, if I ever do spend enough time on the, on, in the rocking chair on the front porch, reminiscing about and doing things that I didn't have time to do when I was in the midst of doing it all would be to immerse myself into the study of cinema. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a book right now, a, a, a second book. I wrote a, a memoir about seven years ago called Easy Street, The Hard Way. And I alluded to, to the, uh, the um, evolution of movies from the time I, I was born to now uh, and all of the factors that, that came into causing them to be made differently marketed differently, looked at differently, and even the frequency of, of the masterpieces, uh, which has greatly diminished over the years. Um, so, but before I go, I wanna be able to say I studied film internationally, what everybody was doing across the world, how it all affected each other, uh, who everybody's heroes were, what the, uh, the, you know, how things evolved um, from the first time they figured out how to capture the image to the first time they figured out how to add the narrative to it. Um, and then they could, you know, like start, holy, holy, holy poop, since we're family <laughs> friendly. Um, you know, you could actually make, you know, take a Shakespeare play or, or you know, a, a Dostoevsky novel and turn it into a movie. And that's when, they began to understand the power and the glory of the art form. 
So, um, but I'm obsessed with knowing how little I know and how much I still need to know and want to know in order for me to feel as though I've honored this thing I love so much, you know, um, truly love, truly, truly by becoming a scholar. I agree with you because looking at your work, I mean, you have over 260 credits, so you've done a smorgasbord of things. I mean, most people know you as being the tough guy, you know, the, the heavy hitter, so to speak. But you also have done comedy, you've done drama, you've done um, tons of voice work in children's films or young adult films, whichever way you want to look at it. And it's, but I think what I really appreciate is you taking time to do independent films and giving those independent works more notice with having your name attached to it. And because I'm a real big proponent for independent filmmaking, because I think that's where the changes start at the, that grassroots level and then work their way up to the, um, the, the bigger um, movie makers, that kind of thing. I don't know what you think about independent filmmakers. Well, I, I actually um, think so much of it that I started my own production company about seven years ago called Winger Prayer Pictures. We have our name on about nine very small, very independent films over the course of those seven years, some of which I'm really, really proud of, and all of the others of which I'm, you know, I give myself props for trying, you know, for for working outside of the system, finding the money independently, finding a cast that would be willing to work on an, in a non-studio, non-guaranteed kind of environment, and uh, lifting up... Uh, new writers, you know, who, whose voices are, have not been heard yet and who deserve a shot. I mean, that's how everybody started someplace. And unfortunately, what I've noticed in our business is that the, the more corporate the business has become, the more safe people's choices have become. And that makes the emergence of a new voice, a new really original free thinking voice, um, that would have been the gold standard, you know, 70 years ago, much more difficult to break out into in this environment. So my um, intention was to create an environment where we could find new voices and, and celebrate them and get their work onto the screen one way or another. Um, what I found out in those seven years is a subject that we don't have enough time to cover here. We can probably do a whole other um iteration of, of, of this conversation. Um, but, um, it's, it was, it was, it was, uh, at, at, on the one hand, a combination of something that of, of, of my own values and beliefs. And on the other hand, a little bit heartbreaking to realize, um, the trend of what used to be a, a vibrant, uh, vital, industry is now completely uh, in the rearview mirror and un uh, underappreciated and undervalued. So, Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And I want to thank you for giving the young directors, writers, actors, um, and people that chance to get their 
work out there and to get themselves that that first break or second break or whatever you want to look at it for a chance to be like again with your name being attached more eyes are drawn to it and there's going to be some of them as we go for your movie history and i want to single you know point out that i really enjoyed and i'm glad that you had your name put with them so i could otherwise i wouldn't have noticed them i to be honest, i never i mean i never heard of them coming out but looking up to the interview for you i was able to watch them and really see some a couple of really good movies that I would not have known about. Thank you. Now, as of everything, there's always a beginning. And um, you started off, I think you were born in um, New York City, Manhattan, to be exact. And um, what led you to go down this path of acting and things like that? What gave you the, uh, the, the go for that bug? Well, everybody in my family did something. Most of them played, played instruments. They were mostly musicians. My dad and my brother uh, had a, a, a period of being professional musicians where they played, they made their living doing it. And, um, but everybody, all my, my dad's siblings played an instrument, had, took a shot at being a, a, you know, in the business for, for a moment or two. So I came from a family of hams, you know, people who just wanted to like, um, sing and dance and, and, you know, just, just whatever, whatever that impulse is that, that makes you want to entertain, you know, take over the room, you know, with, with, with something with me, um, where, uh, you know, everybody expected I was going to, you know, carry the banner and learn an instrument. I just had no it, d- discipline whatsoever. I, I, I couldn't sit at a piano for seven or eight hours a day and learn and, and, and master the, the thing. I, I, I would much rather be outside playing, you know, softball or stickball or all those other New York City street games uh, than being in an apartment, you know, learning an instrument. So if I was going to find an art form to identify myself with, it was, was going to need to be something that required no discipline and no real skill set. And then I got a, a job acting in a play and I realized Eureka I found it I can bullshit my way right through this whole thing and give the illusion that I'm doing something um, that commands your attention even though I have no no uh, uh, bona fides whatsoever no credentials whatsoever and you know acting in front of an audience is a bit of an aphrodisiac so one play led to another play, but, and I just had this phenomenal thirst to keep being on stage, keep being an actor, and keep getting that rush of when you're performing in front of people and you can feel them being affected by it. And it does a lot for the artist himself, and it does a huge amount for the audience if you're doing it right. And when you have those moments where you, you hit it in such a way that you know it's resonating, it's like taking drugs. And so I became completely seduced by the, the notion of acting initially strictly in theater. And it took me forever to get my first on camera job, but um, eventually transitioning to, to film and TV. I always loved the theater. My daughter is, has a theater degree from McDaniel college and hers is in production. So it's on the, um, 
the uh, side that people don't see, but obviously people forget how important the supporting roles are in order for a production, whether it's a play, a film. There's so many hands involved with it to make it a success, to make you, the actor, have to not have to worry about the props and everything else being set up, the lighting. You just have to worry about focusing on your performance. And I think people forget about those parts. And my son does act, did acting in high school, and he's done a little voice acting as an adult. And one of his plays in high school was Guys and Dolls, which I believe you also did in uh, college, correct? Yep. And what role did you play? I did a production of um, Sky Masterson. So you were which the is not lead. the right role for me. It's it's not the right role for me. Yes, yeah, the male lead, and he's like the you know the male ingenue, uh, you know. Um, uh, but when you're in college, you're going to get a lot of roles that are not the right role for you because you know it's like sort of a exercise of attrition. Um, but uh, it was it was a cool experience, and uh, it was great learning though that that score, that Frank Lesser score, phenomenal songs that I got to sing and and it was nice you know wrapping my head around the fact like what is it like to play the lead every once in a while you know not the not the character role which is what I'm what I'm, I spent most of my career doing the one with all the color and all the syncastries and all the, the weirdnesses and the guy who doesn't never get the girl you know but he's the best friend you know and he's he's there and he's he's along for the laughs so it was, it was a cool experience to play that one time. And um, I think there was a story with you and your dad involved with Guys and Dolls where um, he saw your performance and then really appreciated it. That was the one. Uh, yeah, it's a famous story. I've told it you know, a million times. But um, that was the production my dad came to on Thursday night, which was opening night. And then came again on Friday night by himself. And I saw him backstage and I said, you're not supposed to be here. He goes, no, no, I'm, forget it. Go out with your friends. I'll see you tomorrow. And the following day, we spent the whole day together um, riding around him, just shooting the shit. And um, he eventually, there was a, a, a moment, like a quiet moment. He says, you know, I, I came back last night just to make sure what I saw was true. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, this acting thing for you, this is something you really should do. Like, and I went, you know, my, my, my parents were depression kids. The only thing that was important to that generation was getting a, a safe job. So you want to go to college, you want to learn, you know, get credentials to either be a teacher or, a lawyer or a doctor, a safe job where you know you can put food on the table. To get permission from somebody like that to go into the acting field, knowing how tenuous it is and how uncertain it is, and then also for the fact that he was only going to be around for another six months before he passed away. My dad died at 49 years old, so right after that conversation, it was almost like a deathbed, like you should do this, you know, <laughs> it's like you have to take it as that. Like I, I don't have any choice. My dad just told me this is what I need to be doing. 
And from that point on, I never looked back. Never looked back. I mean, I looked back once when things were really, really, really lousy. But that lasted for about 12 hours. I mean, that's a, that's a, I remember when my dad passed away um, at 18 years ago, it was the same thing. Like, last few months, he was living with us before. It's, uh, it's like nobody knew he was dying or going to die, that kind of stuff. But it was certain things that he would repeat, certain stories that he would make sure were known. And it's almost like somehow deep down he knew um, the end was near and he wanted to make sure, sure certain things got across to, you know, me and my brothers. And, um, you know, and those are the moments that I treasure. Yeah. So it sounds like you had that same kind of experience. That happens a lot. I've seen that a million times with friends of mine who are losing their, their one of their parents. You know, they, 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 you know, speaking of the Godfather, it's almost like that moment where he's telling Michael, whoever comes to you, with a plan is the traitor. He's the one that's going to assassinate you. And, 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 and Michael says to him, I know, Dad, you told me. He goes, oh, no, no, that's not. Because he knows that he's not going to be there long, and he's pounding the things you need to know into you. It's, um, yeah, it's the same thing happened with my dad. He just said stuff over and over and over again because he knew he was, these are the things you need to know when I'm gone. And I think I'm glad that sometimes for whatever it is, a sixth sense, like I said, or whatever, that they're able to get that across. Because I think it helps when that that inevitable does happen. It helps with that sense of closure, knowing that he made peace and got everything that he could across, you know, that he needed to and wanted to and, um, and those kind of things. Because obviously we never want them to leave, period. But as a... As, um, as life is, it's always inevitable. You know, you're going to lose a lot of people you care about if you live a long enough life. Yeah, well, you're going to lose everybody. You know, everybody, nobody gets out of here alive. And um, you think back on those, you don't realize they're happening at the time until, you, until you're looking back in, in, in hindsight and you realize that was really important. You know, that was really, you know, Unfortunately, we, we only appreciate these things sometimes when it's too late, but yeah. Now, moving on to your movie career, the first film I saw of yours, I think was your first film, and that was Quest for Fire back in like the early first 80s, film. 1981. And uh, my eldest brother, who's eight years older than me, said, oh, we got to go see this film. You're going to love it. And um, I remember I was 13, no, 12 years old when I saw this film, and it was... Um, you know, something that it, you know, my brother would always take me to certain films. It's sort of my dad um, that a typical 12-year-old or 10-year-old or whatever would not normally see. And I think that's what helped me have a love for cinema is the, the different experiences you can have. But you got to work with what, Gene, Jack, Gene Jack's Anad, Anard? Jean-Jacques Anot. Anot, thank you. Is the French pronunciation. Jean-Jacques Anot. John Jackano, what was it like working with him and doing Quest for Fire? Well, he and I have now worked four times together. Um, he gave me my very first movie job. And uh, over the course of the film, we had a real kind of roller coaster experience with, with one another that ended up being a complete love affair by the time it was over with. 
And then when it came time for him to do his next film, which was Name of the Rose, he put me in that for, you know, what is the most colorful character I've ever played, Salvatore. And, uh, and then he, you know, one of those times where I mentioned where I was actually, you know, so downtrodden that I was considering getting out, you know, because I couldn't pay my bills and nothing was happening. There was no um, indication that, I should stick around to this business because there was no nothing encouraging at all. Jean-Jacques shows up in L.A., invites me to dinner and says, uh, look, I got this movie that's not quite green lit yet, but I wrote you this role. And it's going to star this new kid, Jude Law. And uh, I think it's going to get made. So I'm going to send you this script. It's called Enemy at the Gates. And so uh, once again, Jean-Jacques saved my life by giving me something to encourage me to stick around. He's done that on many occasions. And then we did uh, a thing together uh, on for MGM television a few years back. So he's in and out of my life constantly, and he looms as large as any anybody in this business in terms of the quality of my life and the trajectory of my, my um, what I'm most proud of about the business. Out of those four films, which one is your personal favorite, you know, from your your side, your performance, the role that you were given? Um, you know, I, I please forgive me if this sounds um, 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 on, on, it's, if it doesn't seem like it rings true, but I'm never satisfied with my performance. I always see mistakes and things I wish I had done better. So I'm the wrong guy to ask. Um, I'm very proud of, of all of the films I did with Jean-Jacques, those three and uh, the, the Harry Kibera thing that we did on television, which I have still haven't seen. But, um, cause they were, they're, they're really good films. And the fact that I'm in them and people come up to me and, seem to indicate that I didn't ruin them, which I'm always <laughs> afraid I'm going to do that. I guess, you know, okay, I'll take it. But, um, I'm the wrong guy to ask about like when I was fantastic and, you know, when I was less fantastic, you know, to me, it's, it's, it's all just, I wish I had another shot at that. I think uh, obviously since you haven't seen every one of your, your the films that you're in, it sounds like, I know a lot of actors never see any of their work because of what you just brought up. They're always going to see what they could have done differently. Um, same thing with directors that I've, that are friends of mine that I've talked to. Every time they see their work, they're always thinking I should have edited this or changed that or added some lighting. And I, th I think that just shows the drive. Cause I think once you are satisfied with what you've done, then you, you're only going to go downhill because now you, you've hit the top and now everything will start to fall down because you think you are mastered everything. You stop learning. And I think life is always that learning process. And so I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're, you know, you're still, and it shows in your work that drive to with each role to always learn and adapt and make things better from what you've done before. Yeah. Um, thank you. I, I, I agree with that. I think that, um, um, you should never, ever feel as though I got this in any line of work. You should always 
for me, the, the, the best mindset that keeps you the youngest, that keeps you the most curious, that keeps you the most vibrant and vital is the one where you consider yourself to be a, a student all times. You're always there to learn something new, try something new, see something that affects you in a way that's going to kind of alter what you, what you thought was the way to do it. You know, you're, you're just, you, you should, especially for an artist, you should perpetually think of yourself as a student, as somebody who has more to learn than he actually knows. And you'll stay in that um, remarkable, like glor glorious space of discovery, which is, that's, 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 you know, like that's kind of the, the endorphins or whatever it is that you, why you take drugs that hits a certain part of your brain. Can't think of the, the, the word, but you know, when an artist is in a state of discovery, when he's in a state of pure creativity, where ideas and things and feelings are coming to him and infusing him with this energy to give the performance, that's the state of grace, not knowing like, okay, I'm going to just read my lines this way and, you know, walk this way. You know, that's, that's deadly. Um, so I, 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 you know, I still feel as though I have a huge amount to learn. Still feel as though there are a lot of things about my work that I wish would go deeper. And I'm constantly using every opportunity I have to, to be better. And like I said, it shows, you know, of course, you can look from 1981 all the way up to what you've currently put out, 2020s. We're talking, what, 40 years people can see your your work, and you can see the, the, the performances are getting better and better. And, that's, and, and you started off strong. So, I mean, I don't know where you're going to be, like, in 10 more years. I mean, if you keep churning out this, you might be like um, Clint Eastwood. You'll just keep working all the way up into your 90s. And um, – and, and thing I, is, hope so. I hope so too. I know you got a good, um, good trainer. Yeah, I got a very good trainer. Our mutual friend, Kurt Christian. Uh, I'm curious to see how you found him and, and uh, what you guys talked about when you did this. I'm sure you went back to the Harry Housen move, movies that he's famous for um, and stuff, but uh, he's an under-celebrated human being. He's one of the most beautiful beings who have ever i've ever crossed paths with and he's the reason why i'm here talking to you right now oh i know and, and I, he's just a great guy i mean him and i have had some conversations since the interview and um he's going to be recording an episode with us where he's going to be one of our guest hosts when we do one of our movie reviews so he'll be with um, michaela and ben my two children because normally we do reviews between the interviews and um, his interview actually will be coming out Prior to yours, his interview is going to end our first year. Then um, we have it's a mad, mad, mad. It's a mad, 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 mad world. I had to make sure I said the right amount of mads. Um, review and then you follow that. So you follow it's a mad, 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 mad world, <laughs> which is so fitting for this that's year. A good one to follow. That's a tough. That's a tough act. That's a tough act to follow. Well, if anybody could follow it, it's you. So you know, that's that's the good part. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah. Thank you. Now you did a movie in between 
Quest for Fire and the name it arose. And that was the Ice Pirates, which I remember seeing in movie theaters when I was a boy. And you had the role of um, Zeno. And um, you were working with, what, Robert Ehrlich, um, Angelica Houston, and uh, things like that. And uh, I think it was one where the budget was supposed to be one thing, and then the budget got lowered. But I find it an enjoyable sci-fi romp, you know, where uh, it, it's, just, it's just funny. You know, it, it kind of, it's, it's kind of like Spaceballs-esque type in its humor. I didn't, what memories do you have for Ice Pirates? Um. Mixed, a lot of mixed memories. Uh, all I really remember about that shoot was um, the, the beginning of a, a, a beautiful friendship with Robert Urich, one of those guys who, who, who passed away far too young. But I, had, I ended up doing two movies with him and we hung out off the set as well because we enjoyed each other's company. And then I, I, I spent a huge amount of time while we were making that movie, hanging out with Angelica. Um, I tried not to be like a fanboy where I said, you know, just, you just need to tell me everything that there is to know about your dad, even though I really wanted to do. Um, because I, at that time I was already a cinephile and I was already well aware of the impact of, that John Houston had on the medium and especially in its, formative years you know uh john houston a lot of people don't realize was the very first guy who ever directed his own screenplay so he now it's something that's done all the time you know where you write the movie and then you direct the movie but back in the day when he did it at first which i think it might have been maltese falcon but i could be wrong and that's why i want to go back and study and and, and be able to have uh, all those answers at my fingertips but um she was fun, man. And she was, she was, we had some really, really great conversations and uh, a lot of laughs and uh, just nothing but fond memories of that. I thought the movie was, I mean, it's none of my business with what I thought about the movie. You know, it's like, it's made for the public. But I will say that having that film sandwiched in between Quest for Fire and Name of the Rose. Um, which were two uh, attempts at um, great intellectual exploration um, done with the, the, the ultimate amount of integrity and dignity you could put on to uh, assembling a team to make a film. Um, it was jarring to be in a kind of a, a studio release that was basically targeted at a demographic rather than something that was a great deal of thought and integrity and, and passion was the, the thing that was, that was leading the, 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 the impulse to do the project, which was Name of the Rose and, and, and Quest for Fire. Um, interesting. That's that's kind of how I remember it. Yeah, because I'm I know exactly what you're saying because when you see films like them, I love the Marvel superhero movies. I love watching them because I, I grew up reading into comic books. But there's so many films that follow that same pattern, and you and after a while you do get sick of seeing it's the same dots that are going to be connected, and you you can pretty much tell where it's going to go before the movie ever started. And I. I'm now drawn mostly to more character movies um, 
which you don't really know where things are going to go. Sometimes you do, but you just enjoy the characters so much that learning about them and seeing those different layers unravel is, is really makes for me a better film going experience. Now the name of the Rose, I saw that also in the movie. So my, my oldest brother, like I said, said, we got to see it. Of course I loved it. Um, and I remember seeing that one many times over the years. I think the last time I saw it was just two years ago, maybe three years ago. And you were in with Sean Connery, you know, um, Christian Slater, uh, F. Abra- F. Murray Abram, you know, and it's, it's, it's just like the cast is like huge that you got to work with as Salvatore. And you almost stole the film. Actually, I think you probably did steal the film from them. I don't, you know, and that's, that's kind of hard to do <laughs> when you're talking about Sean Connery and um, F. Murray Abraham. You know, it's, 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 but that role was just so great as the hunchback and, and the way you played it. Sean Connery was uh, my first and one of my only bona fide, larger than life, man's man movie stars that I ever was in the presence of. Um, partially because there are hardly any of those guys left. In fact, he might have been among the last of what I described, you know, whereas in the 30s and 40s, that was the that was the the, the realm, state of the realm. Everybody was a man's man, larger than life movie star, you know, Gary Cooper and Spencer Tracy and Bogart and and, uh, and Cagney and, you know, Eddie G. Um, but Sean was one of the only ones that was left. And um I had a little bit of a problem being in his presence and not, you know, going, <laughs> not becoming a complete genified mass of, 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 of blubbering flesh. But uh, he was so warm and welcoming to me. And, and he, he understood immediately how much I loved when he told stories about the old days, you know, his days on the set with Hitchcock, his days on the set with John Huston his days on the set with, with the greats. And I guess you don't run into guys like that when, you know, that often. And he loved to tell the stories. I mean, you know, his stories about shooting Marnie with, with, you know, with Hitchcock, you know, shooting, um, uh, the man who would be King with Houston, you know, he would just regale me with these things. And we developed uh, a nice, beautiful, warm rapport in the making of the film. Um, and at the end of it, I handed him a photograph, black and white photograph of him uh, as, as William, um, the character he played. Asked him if he would sign it, and he wrote, you're the best thing in this movie. And I went... I can die now. <laughs> that's, that's to, you know, to, to, to like get that stamp of approval from James Bond, you know, not only is he James Bond, but he's, he's underrated because his work when he was not James Bond was as on par with great male movie star acting as it gets. So, um, that's my memory of that. Yeah, I, I can, I can, 
understand what you were feeling like is being um, working with Sean Connery and not want to be a blabbering idiot because I'm talking to you right now. So I think the roles have reversed in the sense where you're now like the Sean Connery and I'm the guy trying not to go. <laughs> oh, well, all right. Good luck. <laughs> I know how I felt. Well, hopefully I'm hiding it well for you. <laughs> Beautifully well. Thank you, Steve. Oh, no, thank you. Now, what was it like working with F. Murray Abraham? Murray and I knew each other from back in the day. Uh, we were both a couple of struggling, struggling actors on the New York scene. And we ended up doing a Broadway play together called Tybala and Her Demon, which was an adaptation of a short story by Isaac Besheva Singer, the great Yiddish writer who won a Nobel Peace Prize. Um, so we did a production of that on Broadway. We became, we actually did it out of town first and then on Broadway. So by the time Name of the Rose came up, Murray and I were old, old buddies from New York and came from a very similar set of circumstances where we were both kind of like a couple of struggling character actors that nobody could quite figure out what to do with. And he was just coming off winning the Academy Award for Amadeus so this was me having an opportunity to hang out with the new improved F. Murray <laughs> Abraham, you know, somebody who finally got the universe to put, okay, you pass. You, you get to sit at the adult table now. Um, so it was fun um, hanging out with him in Rome, which is where we shot most, about three quarters of Name of the Rose, and, uh, you know, and, and telling old war stories and creating new ones. Now, if I understand correctly, you've done a lot of, um, you had a lot of times where you've had makeup put all over you, you know, your, your whole body was covered. And this, of course, was another one of those roles. This was the most time-consuming makeup job you had when you got transformed into Salvatore for one of the particular scenes when they were showing, like, the hunchback, the hunch part and everything. Was, I heard it was, like, 16 hours. Yeah, that, that, that unfortunately... There was another actor that was hired to play Salvatore who really, really fucked up bad and got fired. And that's why I got the role. Um, so when I arrived in, 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 in Rome to start, you know, unfortunately, I didn't have the benefit of doing all of the makeup tests that one would normally do in the, in the run-up to a, a thing like that. They they, they make casts of you or they make masks of you and it's a lot of trial and error. It takes months and months and months of you showing up and, you know, submitting to these. And then finally the makeup test and the camera test and they say, no, this doesn't look right. We start from scratch. You know, it's a long process. On the first day I arrived, unfortunately, I had to not only become salvatore for my face, but it was the scene where I was being tortured so I was shirtless, and it was the only time in the movie that you usually see the hunchback. And that had to be applied for the first time, for the first, one and only time. Um, when you're shooting something like that, that's an application on film, it needs to be perfect. So, and then they had never really mastered my face makeup yet because it was the first time they were doing that as well. So yes, I was in the makeup chair for about 15 and a half hours, which drove everybody in production crazy because they all sat around with their, you know, 
twiddling their thumbs, waiting for me to be ready. And we only had about an hour and a half to shoot this very complicated scene where F. Murray Abraham is torturing me in order for me to confess to the fact that I'm a heretic. Um, so yes, all those stories are true. I can, I can only imagine, I, I mean, I can't even imagine having to sit, sit there and go through all that for virtually almost the whole day, you know, just you know, for an hour and a half. But I guess that's the, uh, the magic of movies is that the parts that people don't see is what the actor or performer has to go through in order to be ready for that role. And, and that, that, that's 15 and a half hours. That's... <laughs> I'm sure when you went to become Vincent, it was a piece John, of cake. John, John Hurt, who played the Elephant Man, did that every day he worked. Not quite 15, but about 12, 12 hours of makeup every single time he worked. So when, when I finally met him on Hellboy, we, we were exchanging war stories. You know, I felt like, oh, well, I, I, was, I guess I was lucky, you know, in comparison. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, you sit there and you go, um, I mean, it, it can, it can drive you nuts if you let it, but the thing that you do is you sit there and you go, I'm in the name of the Rose with Sean Connery and, and Jean-Jacques and, 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 and Dante Ferretti is the production designer, you know, I mean, the amount of Academy Award wins and nominations on the cast and crew of Name of the Rose was mind-boggling. Probably 55 nominations and wins. And that was the movie that I realized, the, the glory of cinema, when I realized that they're all running around like they're in kindergarten, you know, like, here's a pair of scissors, here's some glue, you know, in order to get a shot. And they've all got 55 Oscars between them but they're running around with mud all over them and a cigarette dangling from their mouth. And like, you know, they smell because they've been doing this for like, you know, 17 hours and it's, you know, and in order to get one magical moment of a movie, it's like these amazing artists of all different fields are coming together to, to create a series of moments that hopefully the director will end up with a masterpiece. That's the goal. And I actually was not in a shot, but standing on a hillside, smoking a cigarette of my own, watching the whole crew get ready to do this magic hour shot. Magic hour, you'll have a 20-minute window where the sun is setting and the light is different from any other time of the day. And it's called magic hour and cinematographers love to shoot magic hour shots. But if you take too long, you've blown it. And if you're ready too soon, you have to wait because it's like I said, it's a 20 minute window. And in that 20 minute window, maybe you have two or three takes where the light is perfect in order to get it right. So the, the, this crew of 155 people are running around to try to set up the shot that's going to be this magical moment in the movie. And I'm not in the shot. I'm just watching everybody run around. And it's like all these people have Academy Awards coming out of their ears. And they all look like they're in third grade. And they're all like, you know, filled with boyish and girlish, you know, wonder and enthusiasm. And it was the moment I realized that I'm in the greatest art form ever invented. And, and I'm, 
privileged to have made it to the point where I'm getting to see this and participate in this this way. That changed my life. I mean, that that perspective affected me from that moment on. I thought of myself as an actor differently than I ever did before. And it was um, a good thing to have happened because it it gave me a pride that uh, that I carried with me low these many years. Like I said, The Name of the Rose is one of my favorite films, you know, and I saw it when I was um, like 17 years old, 18 years old. I'm trying to remember when it came, what month, it all depends on what month it came out. And it was just, for those that haven't seen it, you really have to see this film. I mean, the set design, the, the, the cinematography, the acting, it's just everybody on their A game and all the crew doing all that to get that, magical couple hours of film and it's just it's just it's just really a great thing i still remember um sean connery's scene where he's talking to christian slater where he's the one um monk was look was rushing off to go use the loo and he and he said that's where the bathroom is and he goes how do you know he was anxiously running there but now he's coming out relieved so it's like you know there's little things that were just scripted in there and done that, that are so wonderful yeah. Well, that, that book by Umberto Eco, because the movie is based on a best-selling novel. And I think maybe to this day, that's the longest running uh, number one best-selling book in the history of, 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 of fiction. I think it was on the New York Times bestseller list as number one for like 300 weeks or something in a row. And uh, so by the time we did the movie, we knew we, we better get this right because this is a highly admired piece of literature. And, um, you know, you got one crack at it, you know. So um, a huge amount of love and care was put into it. And th- thankfully you got that role because, you were, like you said, you weren't originally cast. And um, it's, it's those weird things that happen where one actor gets replaced by another actor for whatever reason. And um, and people just are just like, well, that was the person that should have been cast to begin with. You know, it, it's it's serendipity, I guess you could say. I agree. Now, then you moved into um, a, a little known TV show called Beauty and the Beast that ran for a number of seasons um, in 1987. And from, from what I've read, the reason you got one of the people that pushed for you to get the role of Vincent was Rick Baker, the, the makeup master. Yeah, I think he's more responsible for me getting that role than than anyone. Um, he put it in their heads as as when he first got hired to create the beast makeup. He 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 volunteered a, a short list of actors that he had worked with who who were used to transforming themselves with prosthetic makeup, special effects makeup. And uh, I was at the top of his list. So by the time I actually met the producers and the network, they already were predisposed because of Rick. And, and that's somebody, you know, when you get somebody of that caliber in your corner um, pushing for you, that, that's when you also know you're, you're really making those good connections. Because I think a lot of people don't treat everybody nicely. And I think 
everybody, when you treat everybody the same, everybody fairly, everybody nicely, people remember that. And then they have good working relationships and it helps with all those connections. And then things open up for you. So I, I would look at it yeah. as that Rick, you must've really worked well with him. And he was just like, Oh, this, this guy's perfect. He's not going to complain about the makeup. He looks good in it. His acting is good. And let's get him because this is going to be something he's going to have to have done to him multiple times. Interestingly enough, I had never worked with Rick prior to that. You know, he knew about me from having watched the other two things that we already talked about, Quest of Fire and Name of the Rose. So he, you know, that that's that's a fraternity. Those guys who are special effects makeup artists, the guys who create the the the, the transformative characters that we just sit there and become and, and then act. That's a small fraternity of guys. And they all know what each other's doing at all times. So Rick had already seen uh, both Quest for Fire and Name of the Rose. And I, I guess had an opportunity to chat with those designers. And they said, yeah, Ron is one of these guys. We don't know how he does it, but he likes to sit around in a chair and do nothing for four hours <laughs> without squirming and without. And I think that was more, more the reason why Rick recommended me, because not everybody can can sit there without getting like, I gotta go, I gotta, I, you know, becoming like claustrophobic and getting nuts. I actually, my favorite thing to do is sit around and do nothing. So, you know, I was the perfect subject for <laughs> a makeup artist, uh, you know, um, you know, whatever, whatever the process they have to go through in order to, you know, start and complete the job. What was it like working with um, Linda Hamilton during um, the Beauty and the Beast? I was in love with Linda as I needed to be. I mean, she was the beauty and she truly was beautiful. And um, I had the exact feelings for her as I needed to have in order to play that guy. You know, I truly admired her. I thought she was just a gorgeous woman. I thought that she exuded integrity, which is the character as this 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 attorney, but who you know doesn't really work for profit, but you know uses her skill for for the betterment of mankind, which is what is at the basis of this this love affair. So yeah, it was. I loved working with Linda, and I thought that it couldn't have been more perfect. Her the casting of her. Um, opposite me, you know, it, it, it did everything it needed to do in order to make me believe, wow, I mean, I would do anything for you, which is what the role required. Yeah, I'm always, I've, I've been a big fan of her, obviously, from like the Terminator movies and other things that she's been in. And it's, she's one of those ones that I, I really like with Terminator 2, where she was suddenly, you know, the, the, the tough person. Like I'm not taking, I'm, I don't need somebody else to help me. I can rescue myself. And like with Sigourney Weaver of alien and, and, and various other people where they set up that they're changing that dynamic in Hollywood at an earlier time, which is happening more and more recently. And um, I think that was the, one of the things I think to draw people to her is that she has that strength and it shows in her characters. Yeah. Everybody, you know, you, you know, you get, you really, if, if an actor is doing his job correctly, 
you really, the audience gets a window into his heart and his, his inmost kind of what drives him. And, um, you know, Linda was one of those beautifully honest performers who you got to see her soul. Um, and yeah, I loved acting opposite her. I loved, that was a show that I did watch uh, my own work and one of the rare ones where I, you know, I wanted to see how it was coming across since I was completely covered up. And uh, I loved watching her. I loved watching her approach to the, the character. So what was it like? I mean, Hellboy, you got to work with Del Toro again, and you've, you've been with him in so many movies. Uh, um, it's, it's obviously the, the relationship between the two of you is great. But what was it like bringing Mike Mignolo, Mignola's character to life? Um, well, because it was, it was, uh, the, the guy who, who initiated the fusion of Mike's character, Hellboy and Ron Perlman to play him was Guillermo. And he had a very strong reason, set of reasons for wanting to fuse those two things together. So I took all my cues from Guillermo, like, what is it about? your film version of this, you know, two-dimensional comic book character that only exists on the page. Now he's going to become three-dimensional. He's going to have a personality. He's going to have, you're going to see him from all the different angles. You're going to see him at rest and in action. You know, you're going to see him um, realized as a human or not as a human, but, you know, as a living, breathing character. And I took all my cues from what, what, what Guillermo was going to make that adaptation from you know Mike's original uh, characterization of Hellboy to you know the guy you actually meet in the movies, um, because I knew that Guillermo doesn't make decisions like that lightly. Um, I knew how hard he fought. It took him seven years to win me that role, and he doggedly fought for seven years. That's no exaggeration in order to finally get the movie done with me in that role. Um, but for him to not give up after seven years meant that he was pretty serious that, it, you know, it, that it should be me, which is like, you, you don't get permission greater than that. So by the time we made the movie, it was like, yeah, uh, if you think I'm Hellboy, then, you know, who am I to, argue all i need to do is just listen to what you want and give it to you and Guillermo and i had already done two movies together and we had already adopted each other as non-blood brothers um and so we already had this wonderful beautiful personal relationship this appreciation for one another uh i loved taking direction from him and then ultimately watching what those directions led to because his movies are so beautifully visually sumptuous and he loved uh you know using me as his muse and you know like you know the other guy i'm gonna we're gonna we're gonna filter this whole thing through your whatever your, your weirdness your your sickness your twisted you know uh undeveloped adolescent personality you know which is basically what what we needed to do for hellboy and so it was like seamless. It was, you know, it was like, 
it was probably the, one of the easiest uh, jobs I ever had. I mean, there were things that were difficult. It was another four-hour makeup job, and some days it was six hours, depending on what, whether he was wearing a shirt or not. But that was one of those jobs where I would sit in the makeup chair for four hours and go, yeah, but I'm Hellboy. And how many dudes on this planet wish they could say that? So whatever, however long it takes to get me ready to be camera ready, it's fine with me. So it was like a real, just nothing but positive memories of, uh, um, like a, it was like a love fest. It was like a, a you know, Gamma, after fighting for seven years, got his way and didn't have to look back or apologize or explain himself to anyone. And, you know, I was the recipient of this amazing gesture of goodwill and, and this gift. So, yeah, it was a love fest. I want to say you are, to me, the Hellboy. You know, I've seen both your movies. I own, I own them. I own the animated versions where you've done the voice work for Hellboy. And I, I really wish that you guys could finish that, get that third Hellboy movie out somehow. Um, I know they redid it, you know, recently. I've not seen that one yet because to me, you are Hellboy. It's like, it's like when Harrison Ford hangs up his hat and is no longer Indiana Jones and somebody else comes in to play Indiana Jones, it's, it, you're not Harrison Ford. I mean, they are that character. I mean, it's just the way it is. You are Hellboy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. No, you know, the odds of getting the third one done and finishing the trilogy are uh, about um, a gazillion to one. There's still that 1% where, you know, maybe we will do this one day. I don't know. I, I, I think we should. Um, I know it's, it's you know, the, we're both getting older and he's got so much stuff on his plate, and, you know. But the only way I would ever do it was with, is with Guillermo. And so getting the two of us to, to agree, okay, we're going to take two, two and a half, three years off to do Hellboy 3, um, that was that's probably... Uh, an impossible lift but still there's a chance there's a shot who knows who knows i mean so many things that happened in the course of my life that seemed like no that's not that's not even possible that's like you couldn't even dream that so you just never say no you just never you know you never you never because the whole thing is a big dream that is true and what I want to go out with is talking about some of your independent films and do a couple of little brief hitters, and then we're going to end with your current film that's out, The Big Ugly. You were involved in the independent film The Last Supper, where you played uh, Norman, and that was an interesting dark comedy. Um, with that, that I think is is res, um, still pertinent today as it was when it came out in 1995. So. I heard you fought to get that role. Like once you read the script, you you told the director um, Stacy Title, "It's got to be me." Yeah, she was out to another actor, um, and uh, it was a long time ago. I can't remember the circumstances of why she asked me to read it, and um, I don't like to read something, you know, that's 
that's already promised to somebody else because then I get all emotionally involved. And, and that's what happened. I read this thing and I, I just, very rarely do I, do I say, I got to play this character. I don't feel that way that often. But in this one, I just went, oh, I, 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 I see this guy. I know, I, I know what he sounds like. I know what he looks like. I know what a jerk he is. I, I got to play him. And I said that to her. And I said, who do I got to kill? Like, you're out to another actor. Give me his address. You know, well, I won't kill him, but, you know, he'll have problems from the waist down for about eight months, and you're going to have to use me. And uh, she saw the passion. And uh, somehow the movie ended up, the role ended up being mine. I don't know all the details of what they did with that other guy. <laughs> um, I, I hope I hope and pray he's alive and well. <laughs> well, the, we'll never know, I guess. But the key thing is, is you got to do that role. And it, for those that haven't seen The Last Supper, it came out in 1995, and it, it's a really good film to see. And it, it's, it's a nice, it has Cameron Diaz, it has... Um, Courtney Vance, it has Bill Paxton in the, in the cameo role, and Charles Dern. It's a lot of names in there that they were able to get a hold of Jason Alexander and put together in this um, nice set piece of you know seeing these people go into a dark place for what they thought was good reasons. And um, it's it, I find it I just find it um, interesting. I don't want to spoil the movie for people that haven't seen it. But it's it's definitely worth it, and, and you steal the last 20, 25 minutes of the film. I mean, in, in perfect Ron Perlman fashion. Thank you. Thank you. Bunruku. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. Um, oh, Bunraku. Bunraku. You played Nicola, the woodsman, the big bad. You know what you've done in a lot of films. You know you played a big bad, and this one, again, you have um. Josh Harnett, Woody Harrelson, Demi Moore. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other names that are all in there, all in this this nice little film. And it's basically um, a lot of different action scenes. And for those that like action movies, this is a good one. What was, what was your experience like working on this? I think it was a lot of um, green screen or whatever involved with it. A lot of green screen, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a post-apocalyptic movie takes place hundreds of years in the future. So um, the green screen comes with the territory. Um, but what I loved about it was the mindset. Um, it's a very violent movie uh, that takes place in a world that has been so, so um, negatively affected by man's impulse to be violent to his fellow man, that guns are, are, uh, um, outlawed, uh, all, all kinds of weapons, you know, of, of, of war have been outlawed. And it's the most violent movie you've ever seen because now people are like figuring out ways to kill each other with a comb, with a hairdryer. I mean, you know, with, with like chains and like, you know, putting weird tips on their boots and stuff. So the, you know, it was an expose on the impulses that, you know, no matter what you do to legislate, you cannot legislate away the impulse the impulse of the darkest impulses of, of man's heart. And um, I thought it was a, a powerful look at this impulse of violent, violence. I thought it was well crafted on the page. 
And then when I heard the, the cast, as I was one of the last ones to be on board, Woody had already come on board. Demi Moore was already on board. Uh, Josh Hartnett was already on board. I just went, I, you know, I, I got to do this. So, and I ended up, you know, I'm, I'm still very, very dear friends with the filmmaker Guy Moshe, who is um, um, one of those guys that we talked about earlier, you know, this fresh, original, new voice that has to struggle in order to, you know, find a way to get seen, you know, because he doesn't think like anybody else. Yeah, but which is a blessing and a curse. That is true. Sometimes you're ahead of the game and people haven't called up to you yet. But um, for those that haven't seen this film, it, it, it is a visually spectacular. You know, the color use um, with some of the different characters, the music. And, and again, you have solid actors doing solid performances and all the way through. And it's, it's, it's a really good change of pace from what's typically out there. Mm, thank you. The Big Ugly, um, I saw that I, when it came out. I, I, actually, shortly after it came out, I, got, I owned it on digital. And um, for those that are wondering, it just came out about a month or so ago. It's um, still available digitally, and it's going to be out on Blu-ray and DVD, if I remember reading correctly. I think you're right. And that one is good. You play Preston, and you have Malcolm McDowell in it. Um, Trying to remember Bruce McGill as Milt mm-hmm. and all those and a lot of younger actors that are in there and yeah Nicholas 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 Braun from Succession uh, Levin Rambin uh, wonderful actress Vinnie Jones is the star of the film uh, and co-produced the film yeah he plays Neilan and. Uh, for those that don't know, it's basically you are um, a West Virginian oil man and Malcolm McDowell plays a guy, I guess you could say, with um, ties in the London underworld and um, he helps you broker a loan, but your son has a different agenda um, that's a little bit uncontrolled id or, or psyche or whatever, which leads things to be problematic in the movie for Vinnie Jones's character. I think that's a, you know, and it goes and with the repercussions from that go on to it. It almost reminds me of a, a Western movie done in the modern day. A lot of people have, have, uh, have made that observation. I, I agree. I think it's, it's got all of the, uh, the kind of structural, foundation of, of, of a great Western, but it's just set contemporarily. But there's shootouts and there's there's familial things that get in the way of uh, people making deals go through smoothly and stuff. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it, it could have very easily been a Western. I love the way how your character is introduced at the air, at the airport or the air, you know, basically the tarmac. And you see a certain flag, and your character just walks over there and just has this nice um, yelling at the one guy's about the uh, it was a Confederate flag flying on a truck, and you're pulling it off, and you go into this whole thing, and I thought, oh, that is great because it really gives an idea what this character is like with his honor and his dignity, and, and it kind of fills in with that whole thing. But I thought that was a nice opening scene that helped set your character up. 
I agree. I mean, I, I when I got finished reading that scene, I think that was page 11 that scene happens on, so it's right in the beginning of the movie. Um, I finished reading that scene, I picked up the phone, I called Vinny, and I said, I'm in, you know, just from that scene. And, of course, I finished reading the script and and and, and had great admiration for the whole kind of invention of the character, the mindset that went into inventing that character. And I enjoyed it a lot. And I'm really happy that you enjoyed watching it because it's one of those movies that I'm kind of proud of. One of the few that I've done that I'm, that I'm like, I don't have any real reservations about this. I'm pretty proud of this thing all the way through. Yeah. And for listeners that haven't seen it, like I said, it's available digitally and soon physical copies. I mean, personally, I like to get a physical copy myself. So I know I'll probably be, you know, getting the blue. You know what they did? Uh, um, um, you know, the drive-in movie theater scene is coming back because of COVID. Because it's the perfect way to go out and watch a movie, but without exposing yourself to, you know, the, the virus. So there's a lot of drive-ins that are doing pretty good, pretty brisk business. And we uh, we went heavy on the... Uh, the drive-in uh, version of uh, Big Ugly. Uh, it played in a lot of, it could still be playing. But my point is, check your local listings. It could still be playing in a drive-in near you. It's a good way to see the picture because it's, it's a big screen and you're in the luxury of your own car having, you know, nice butter-filled treats. It's always good to be able to bring your own snacks. And there, never mind, there is one other movie that came out just a couple years prior to Prisoner, um, the Escape of Prisoner 614, where you played the sheriff. And that just seemed like the perfect Ron Perlman role also, where, you know, you come in and you, uh, you're the tough guy. Your sheriff is very smart, able to track people, and you seem to have two deputies that are not as good at their jobs as they could be, mainly because there's no crime in and how you, you have to shut them down. And then they, then they hear about this, the prisoner escape 614, and they go out there and, and find them. And uh, I just thought the whole movie was just a nice tale, you know, of going through and about how the deputies find themselves in life. And, um, and, so, does, and so does the prisoner. And, um, and, and the sheriff is this unchanging force of nature to be reckoned with. Mm-hmm. I agree. I, it's another one of those, and you know, it, 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 it's another one of those things where I get approached and it's an indie, it's not a studio film, you know, they've cobbled together a budget and they got to shoot this thing as quick as they possibly can because they don't have a, a lot of money. And uh, I like working that way. You know, I like it probably was a, a, a young writer who uh, was getting one of his first shots and uh, they had put a couple of guys in the cast who I had admired in other things. And so, yeah, it's just like, yeah, I, I, I liked the role. I related to the role. Like you said, it was a no brainer. Um, but yeah, I had a good time making it. And that's, that's again, like I said earlier, I want to thank you for doing those independent movies because I never would have saw the prisoner, the escape of prisoner six fourteen before local color before um, the Last Supper. You know, there's a lot of other films that your name drew my eyes to them, 
and allowed me to, to enjoy these work. Cause a lot of these, you're not the main character, you're a supporting role, but to see the work of these other actors are able to perform and the director and the writer, everything like we talked about earlier. Again, thank you for doing that. Cause a lot of people of your stature don't take the time to do those, those things. Well, the very first truly independent movie I ever did was called Kronos, which was the very, very first movie of Guillermo del Toro. We made it in Mexico City with no money whatsoever. Um, and uh, it was, there was something about the experience that really kind of was jarringly pleasurable. I couldn't figure out what it was. And I said, oh yeah, it's, it's because there's, there's no suits on this movie. There's no studio guys. There's no lawyers. There's no guys watching the clock. It was just a bunch of artists, all of whom had kind of come up with Guillermo who wanted to just basically help show the world his artistry. And it was, it was just a pure creative experience where you didn't feel like they were watching the pennies and they were watching the clock and they were, you know, like they were having long discussions about the content of the script. You know, this was an artist who was given everything he needed to make a, a little movie. He wasn't given enough to make a big movie, but he was given just enough to get his vision on the screen and enough so, so that he won an award at the Cannes Film Festival and the world began to say, oh my God, there's a new, a new sheriff in town. His name is Guillermo del Toro. And you can see what happened ever since then. But for me, it was the opening, my eyes opening up to the notion of how pure shooting an indie film felt. It, it was as close to that first feeling I got in high school when they put me in the school play and we were just doing it for the love of it. You know, there was no, it was not a career choice. It was not a, a way to go buy a house in Beverly Hills or a Ferrari. It was just an exercise in, in creativity. And uh, doing indie films reminds me of, of, of that original impulse more than anything else, which is why I do as many of them as I do. Now, Ron, how can people follow you on social media? What are some of the sites that they can follow to see what you're into? Well, I have a, my, my handle is Pearl Mutations. That's at P-E-R-L-M-U-T-A-T-I-O-N-S. Um, and I do, I have a Twitter feed, which is mostly political because I'm a kind of a political junkie and I, I have a very, very kind of strong opinions about what's happening in the United States right now, in the world right now. So I, I keep all my political stuff to Twitter. My Instagram is more fun, uh, very little politics. Uh, and so that's also pro-mutations. And I think there's a Facebook page too, but I don't have much to do with that. Um, so yeah, if you want to follow me, you can do that. And, um, Again, I know you got work coming out with Pinocchio and other stuff that people will be seeing in the, in the either next year or the year after. I know with um, all the stuff with COVID, it's hard to say when things are going to get released because everything's been shot to heck for this year. So you don't know what the market's going to be like for things coming out next year because it's going to be a log jam. Uh, but That's true. There will be a log jam. There's already movies that um, I'm in a big movie that needs to have a big theatrical release called Monster Hunter. It was supposed to open 
right now in, in the early uh, part of September. And they've pushed it to April, but who knows whether even April will stand. I mean, we don't know whether we'll be back to normal and people will be in the theaters in April or, you know, you know, a, a theater that seats a thousand people will maybe have 300 people limited to it. So that's not a lot of film distributors are going to figure out there's a way to make their money back that way. So it's, it's, everything's up in the air. Um, we just got to thank God for every day we have here. And, you know, we're able to put food on the table, you know, if we are and stay healthy, you know, that's the main thing right now. Oh, I agree with you. And, um, I just want to thank you again, Ron, for, you know, allowing me to interview you and, um, hopefully we could down the road, follow up and talk about some of your other work and some of your current work that, that's going out at that time, especially, like I said, I really like to push independent product because people don't really hear about them. And I want to make sure that those, those creators get that chance for people to get more chance, uh, more people to watch their work or see their work. Let's do it. Let's do it. Um, we'll stay in touch. And uh, whenever the next big wave uh, is worth talking about, then let's hook something up. It's a pleasure talking to you, Steve. All right. Thank you, Ron. Thank you all for joining us for that wonderful interview with Ron Perlman. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we did. Uh, please follow us on Facebook at Diecast Movie Review Podcast or follow us on Twitter, uh, Instagram, or you can email us feedback at Diecast movie review podcast at gmail.com if you want to stick around uh, we're also going to be playing a trailer for bill watches movies we hope you follow us uh we hope that you'll join us join us in the next episode and see which movie we pick next the year is 1922. We are in the Valley of the Kings, Egypt. The sun beats down on dozens of workers as axes go up and down, as shovels move rocks and sand. Steel strikes stone, and Howard Carter, nearing the end of his money and his patron's patience after years of disappointment, squints and looks at his work. Dust fills the air, along with the curses of the native foreman directing his charges. A young water boy scrambles back and forth from water barrel to digger, quenching thirst one man at a time. He stumbles and spills some of the water on a stone. It is smooth, chiseled to a sharpened edge in the bedrock. It is no accident. It is not natural. It is the first step that would lead to the tomb of the Pharaoh Tutankhamun. Three weeks later, steel strikes stone again, and Carter, along with Lord Carnivron, would open a small hole in a doorway to a tomb, undisturbed for 3,000 years, filled with riches beyond imagination. Can you see anything? Carnivron would ask Carter. Yes, Carter would reply. Wonderful things. 
wonderful things that would cause a renaissance in the interest in archaeology and everything Egyptian. This interest would become a mania, a mania that would spread throughout the world, reflected in literature and in fashion. It is only a matter of time before film takes notice. The year is 1932. Carl Lamel Jr. is the ruler of his own kingdom. Located thousands of miles away from the Nile Valley in Hollywood, California, he looks out of his office window and sees life, sees stories being created every day. Once it was a farm, now it is a hive of creativity, his own universal city. A young messenger in woolen cap and suspenders holding up his baggy pants runs toward a nearby soundstage, a piece of paper in his hand. The hot West Coast sun beats down upon him as he moves toward the building, casting a small shadow upon the ground. Given to him as a present by his father, Universal Pictures is thriving under Junior's guiding hand. In 1931, lightning struck twice. The first bolt involved a novel. In his search for inexpensive literary properties to bring to life, Lamel finances an adaptation of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. On the heels of his first horror hit, Dracula, Frankenstein builds on the atmosphere, special effects, and use of music that the adaptation of Bram Stoker's vampire novel set the foundation for earlier in the year. The movie is an instant hit and begins to put Universal on a solid financial footing, as well as giving them a reputation for turning out inexpensive horror movies on a regular basis. The second bolt brought Frankenstein's monster to life and made an overnight star of a quiet, polite British actor named Boris Karloff. He was born William Henry Pratt, but Karloff spent his formative years dividing his time between small roles for stage and screen and odd jobs and manual labor. The moment that the monster is revealed on the screen, Karloff's life would never be the same. It would take a while for the movie-going public to associate the exotic-looking actor with the towering, silent monster, but his star rose quickly, and Lamel knew that he must act quickly. They must strike while the iron is hot and take advantage of this new momentum. They must find another horror vehicle for their new star, 
Boris Karlov. The year is 2021, and a new podcast is coming. Created by Bill Mize, the man who brought you the award-winning Bill Watches Movies, he now brings you Monsters by the Minute, a new storytelling journey into the world of classic horror films. A unique combination of biography, old-time radio, and classic storytelling, the first season of Monsters by the Minute will tell you the story of The Mummy, the 1932 classic that would combine the public's fascination with Egypt with the need for Universal to have another movie for Karloff. This understated occult horror classic would cement Karloff's reputation as the premier horror star of the decade and bring Universal more fame and acclaim as they go three for three in building their horror movie stable. From the screenwriters to the director to the stars, Join Bill as he tells you the story of the mummy from both sides of the camera. Minute by minute, he will tell you the story of Imhotep, the undead priest, as he attempts to be reunited with his long-lost love, the Princess Anxanamon. If you'd like to learn more, please go to monstersbytheminute.com and sign up now to receive up-to-the-minute news about the podcast. Get ready, gentle listeners, for Monsters by the Minute, Season 1, The Mummy. I'd like to invite you to check out my film, Loon Lake, a folk horror thriller based on the Minnesota ghost story of Mary Jane, the Witch of Loon Lake, streaming now on Tubi TV and Amazon Prime, starring David Selby and Catherine Lee Scott of Dark Shadows, Nathan Wilson and Kelly Kitko, and directed by myself. It's also available on special edition Blu-ray and DVD, which you can order from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Best Buy, and Oldies.com, where you can also check out several other of my releases on DVD, such as The Nighttime Winds, Theater Fantastique, The Dr. Mabuza Collection, and The Last Case of August T. Harris. I hope you check out my film, Loon Lake, and I hope you enjoy it. Do you believe this is a test? I must believe it. There's no witch. She's just some poor girl. I will come for you in three days. 
HollandsworthProductions.com H-O-L-L-I-N-S-W-O-R-T-H Productions.com And enjoy Loon Lake.